Welcome. You're tuning in to The Gray Area Presents, where we attempt to widen the scope of view towards marginalized groups through storytelling, open dialogue, and hard-hitting questions. This segment of TGAP focuses on people of color and being more than a stereotype. We sat down with our next participant during the summer of 2020. She's an educator, entrepreneur, writer, and a social innovator who's long developed an open-minded perspective through traveling, emulating practices of her family's past, and building bonds towards a stronger human race. She spoke with us about cultural recognition, developing her creative educational concept outside, and her experience teaching in the New York City charter school system. I introduce to you Miss Jerry Worldwide. Well, I'm from Cary, North Carolina, which is a very suburban area. Um, it's right next to Research Triangle Park, which is often referred to as the Silicon Valley of the East. Um, so when I was growing up, there was a lot of affluent neighborhoods. Well, there still are in Cary, North Carolina. Um, and my dad was uh, an NFL scout. So he moved us to that area and you know, it was one of those things where it was like an accomplishment to be able to to live here, you know. Um, but now the way the world, the way things are, is kind of like, you know, is it? You know, you, you have so many different perspectives on like where you can live. And then you have even our president right now that's like wanting to segregate housing, like literally tweeting about segregating housing this week. It's just one of those things where it's like we can choose to be together if we can find ways to be together in harmony or if we have to be separate to find harmony you know that's one thing but i think that we've progressed so far you know with all these different hues and colors and like so many different blended families in america and all over the world that you know anybody should be able to live anywhere so it kind of makes me think about it when i look back on it like being the only black family in a neighborhood the only black family on the block you know is that really is it accomplishment like the fact that my dad could provide for us is an accomplishment alone so yeah growing up in Cary, north carolina was a very interesting experience culturally um things that they value things that a lot of people around me valued you know were different from my value system and the way i was being raised but can you I, give me an example um juneteenth okay you know like this year it was a celebration all over America of Juneteenth. And I we've been celebrating Juneteenth all my life. We used to go to Memphis and there would always be, that's one of the first times I saw Yo Gotti was in Memphis as a Juneteenth, you know? So it was like a regular thing for us. So to see it almost like, I would compare it to the way people talk about how the corporations took a hold of pride. Mm -hmm. You know, that was kind of how I was seeing Juneteenth this year. Like, oh, look at them. Like all of a sudden choosing to acknowledge something and, you know, that's been around know. in our culture for so long literally since yeah. 1865 you mm -hmm. know so it, it's it's just an experience it's i mean i'm open i'm receptive and one of the main things that i like to talk about is that um i'm open to the malcolm x perspective anybody can evolve and change their mind mm -hmm. you know so like i always try to put that out there you might have been raised one way you might have always seen one thing you might have you know, been taught this is the way it's supposed to be, but you can still wake up and just decide one day, like, you know what, I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to move that way. I'm not going to treat people that way. Like everybody has that opportunity to just wake up and be better. So, um, 
having this experience as a child, have you found a way to try and replicate that for the next generation? Uh, do you even think that's a necessity coming and being afforded those opportunities? You feel like that's even something that you need to help give to the next generation? <clears throat> One of the things that when people ask me, you know, when they look at my resume or they see my social media, see some of the places that I've been, um, when they ask me, I've been to uh, 25 countries. Mm -hmm. When they ask me, you know, how did, you know, where did you, how did you do all this? And, you know, and I'm like, I actually started at a very, very young age, which again goes back to my, my parents. And I would even say my grandparents being like adventurous and willing to go places, you know, um, there's so many conversations about black history right now. We've been, even I teach online, so we've been talking about reconstruction, black migration. Um, so that definitely impacted my family. My, my maternal gra uh, grandmother, who I was very close to, moved. She was born in Georgia, moved to Florida picking butter beans, then moved to New Jersey in her 20s. By that time, she already had four children. And then she moved from New Jersey to California and lived in Richmond for 40, 50, 60 some years and have four more children just like lived out her life, you know, and now we're dealing with gentrification in Richmond, trying to get her house, you know, all that, all the things that are happening, like people don't really understand how all this manifests because when I was a kid and she would come and stay with us, she was telling stories about her grandmother who was a slave, you know what I'm saying? So it's like people don't even realize how how this is really tangible and how the effects are really, really still felt. But anyway, so my family, you know, they moved around. So I knew I kind of wanted to make some moves too. So when I was in seventh grade, I don't even know how, whatever happened, we ended up getting a letter and I was invited to go on a trip to Australia. I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to go, but I didn't know I was willing to take on all the things that would go with following up on pursuing that type of venture. Uh, but my uncle, who had just retired from United, who was one of the first black ramp managers in the, Uni in the United Terminal in San Francisco Airport, he retired and moved to North Carolina. And he just so happened to go to, with my mom to the presentation that day. And he said she has to go. So we started putting in motion how I was going to do it, how I was going to get the money, how I was going to just all the stuff. And it was with an organization called People to People, Student Ambassadors. I did that. I did People to People. Where'd you go? I went to Paris, London, the Netherlands, and Amsterdam. Is Amsterdam in the Netherlands? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was one other wow. place. I forget. Probably London. Belgium because it's right yes, there. Yes, it was Belgium, actually. Mm -hmm. We were there for like a day. You're right. Yeah. There we go. Mm -hmm. So I did that. Wow. Okay. So you know People to People. Mm -hmm. I okay. Do. So this is part of what I'm saying about what I'm doing for the next generation because I saw mm -hmm. that, honestly... That's feasible financially for a certain group of people. And although I wanted to push people that way, because even when I was teaching in the classroom, I could have applied for people. But there were some people that, like, we did talk and have conversations about what extra things they could do, you know, to supplement the charter school education in New York City. And we found things, but that wasn't really everybody's, that wasn't really the path a lot of people were seeing. So, I, you know, you already know you did it. So it is a whole undertaking the great thing that I love was all the training, you right. know, because before we even went on the trip, you we had months of projects yeah. and trainings, packing the suitcase, practicing with all, you know, all that stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm in answering your question, I'm keeping all these things that I've done doing in the back of my mind. 
Um, so then in college, I studied in Switzerland. And then for graduate school, I went to school in London. So I'm packaging all these things in my mind. How am I going to, how am I going to use this? How am I going to pay this forward? Because I know this is extraordinary because I'm looking at my family, people, the opportunities they're, they're getting versus what I'm able to do. I already know how am I going to pay this forward? So then I started teaching, classroom teaching in New York, in Harlem, and amazing experience. Um, and I've been a substitute since college. I've sub subbed in North Carolina and New York. And it just really just really allowed me to just see the landscape of education, you know, from just different perspectives, from different different things. I've done a lot of things in schools, work in schools, because I have my own company, so I do get a lot of contracts to do different things. So I have just this, I'm just watching. I'm trying to just get more information and take it in. So as I'm going through this process, uh, about two years ago, this idea kind of hit me, how I could merge the education with the travel, right? How I could merge um, still bonding and spending time with young people, but being more adventurous and going places and doing things. And so I came up with this concept called outside. Outside is basically, um, uh, it's like a TV show, um, but more like vignettes. Because what's more important is the experience that the students are having. Because so many, everybody's eyes are on their, their, their screens. So if you are watching the screen, you might as well learn something. You might as well engage in something educational, you know, and kind of have a vicarious experience. So basically the show is more or less, um, each show has a location theme. And three students are contestants. So three students are contestants on this show outside. They go to a specific country or state, depending on how things start, how things start cooking up. And they participate in three challenges. One's gonna be culinary, one's gonna be cultural, and one's gonna be like some type of art. And as they go through these challenges, they're um, you know, meeting people in that area, they're trying foods in that area, they're learning from other young people in that area, right? And they're accumulating like cool points. And at the end of the episode, you know, people that ask questions, people that weren't scared to try things, you know, each of those three contestants has a level of points. And eventually those points will allow them to win scholarships. So that's kind of like one of the ways that I've been working to manifest this. And so I actually shot um, shot an episode in Harlem um, where we they had three um, learning journeys that they went on. They made guacamole, these three student contestants. Um, they worked with a rapper and they made some rhymes um, and they worked with a sneaker designer as well. And it was a really good experience. It was just such a great day. Everybody got to step out of their comfort zone, try something new. And I got a lot of positive feedback from it. But this is all pre-COVID, you know? So I'm still thinking about how I could translate outside into um, more tangible product where I could really take three, you know, small, I'm still keeping with the small group, three student contestants and just have an adventure, have an educational venture outside of your, your norm, you know, whatever that is now. So what was, what's the show called again? Outside. Outside. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're coming from inner city, Harlem, New York. Mm -hmm. How do you see, and this is that funding going, you know, these are kids that have probably never been outside the city and you're right. affording them this opportunity. Mm -hmm. You're finding them maybe in your school system or applying online how do you find the accessibility or the lack thereof because it's minority kids or, you know, some people 
love to give kids from the hood a dollar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're doing something good for them. Right. Right. Before that, can I ask one question? Talk to me about the educational system in Harlem. Mm. <laughs> Just paint that a paint a picture of what that looks like to someone who yeah. has absolutely no idea. <sighs> well, and that can lead into what she's asking, mm-hmm. you know. There's so many things that I saw and experienced um, working with schools in Harlem. And a lot of it kind of brought me to a place that made me sad. Um, Again, I'm from Cary, North Carolina. And I attended Wake County Public Schools. Wake County Public Schools, um, at that time, don't quote me, it was either sect number two or number three in the nation, the school system. So Wake County Public Schools were either number two or number three in the nation during the time when I was matriculating through. And um, we went on a field trip every month. Uh, I also went to tracking out at the YMCA. Um, I had an amazing counselor, Jimmy and um, Diane just were like, I was really, really nurtured there. It was just an amazing experience to go there. And we went on field trips on a weekly basis. I think every Thursday we might have went on a trip. So it was kind of to the point where I was like, I don't feel like going on this trip anymore. I had a huge problem when we went to Colonial Williamsburg and I only saw like one or two slaves. I was like, I, I'm, I hadn't even gone to an HBCU. I hadn't even read as much history as I have now in my life. But at that time, I knew in proportion there should have been way more slaves. And just to go there as a black student at a school where there are very few black students expecting to at least see black people at Colonial Williamsburg and seeing just a few slaves that were immaculately clothed, I was irritated. So, yes, we went on a trip to Duke Homestead and I was like, yep, this is definitely a plantation of slave cabins, you know, but it's interesting how we um, have this revisionist history where we just kind of paint the brush we want to over it and make it sound how how it's convenient instead of really taking on the truth, working through it and finding solutions to help level the playing field. Gotcha. And then when it comes to the Harlem school system, you saw, was there a big difference in the education that you received as far as maybe, and that could, there could be, it could be a difference in whatever way you may think, but mm-hmm. did you see some some differences? Based on the way I grew up in North Carolina and the experiences I was a part of and watching children have in Harlem, I I was really sad. You know, to take them on a field trip was a fight. Mm-hmm. You know, even free field trips, find places there, yeah, you could bring you could bring kids, but to you know, because I, I think and this is the education system, it's has some of the same fundamental problems as law enforcement. Really what we're what we're talking about is the systems. These systems need to be dismantled. So when you tell even a a black, um, a black educator uh, or or a a person of color who makes the decision to be educational entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. right? This is privatizing education. So even though they're an entrepreneur, they still have expectations to make money. You're making money off of taxpayer dollars at the expense of children it's, it's a hard model to monetize and it puts them in this position where they're on this hamster wheel of chasing funding. I need more funding for my school. I need more funding for my school. You know, a lot of times people have a hard time saying, you know what, I have enough. Every child has a uniform. Every lunch is, everybody gets a lunch. Da, da, you know, that's good. 
because they the the way that the systems work the way that they they want you to think is i have one school okay i need two i got two schools okay i need four i open four schools this year i need to open 10 next year instead of focusing on i know all the children in the fifth grade all the children in the fifth grade have a uniform all the children in the fifth grade eat lunch every day and 15 of the children are going to take an extra lunch to go just so they have something to eat at home. You know, one of the problems that I had um, with um, Governor Cuomo, right, because I've, I've been in New York for the past six years, one of the issues I had one day was he said on one of his press conferences that we have to open schools because schools are child care. Now, if you want to get to, you know, some people like to get to the logistics and the, well, by definition, if the child is taken care of, yes, by definition, school is child care. But when the person who makes the decisions about how money is allocated thinks of school sheerly as child care, that is the problem. That is the fundamental issue about how you're making decisions about the place that people who will run our country go every day. And and when you when you when the leader has that thought and values school and values the teacher and compensates the teacher adequately and makes sure resources are put in place so the schools can get what they need and and not have to have administration fighting with the uh, educators. You know when when those things are put in place, that's way less stress on the child. It's way less stress on the family, and then it can it's more of a relationship building because. Honestly, like I was, I appreciate the opportunity that I had to teach. It was a great experience. I met some phenomenal children, some phenomenal families, but I also had some levels of resistance from some parents when I was trying to correct behaviors or when I was trying to be helpful that made me to the point where I was like, I don't know, I don't want to do this anymore at all. Because the administration is so caught up in the financing and, and trying to keep the lights on and whatever they're doing with the money, because there are no checks and balances when it comes to charter schools, right? That's why there are so many of them popping up, because you get to perform independently, but you still get taxpayer money. You know, so that's a whole, it's a whole issue in itself, but it just, it puts so many strains on relationships, you know, so you can't really build that relationship with the family like you might want to like even growing up in North Carolina there were you know situations where people were teaching children of people that they taught you know it's hard to do that when you're in a charter school and you're on this hamster wheel of chasing funding and everybody's expendable and you don't really utilize resources to help make the teachers and the deans and the people like that stronger because you're trying to open the next school right you know so it was just um so hard to see the reality of the actual situation when you get in there, you know, because, you know, you look, if you look on social media, you're like, oh my God, this is an amazing school. Look at these kids in these great uniforms. They're singing songs. They're doing affirmations. Oh my God. Like, cause you know, I only put the highlights on social media. You know, I put one thing on social media that one of the schools that I worked with didn't like, and it was a, it was a blowout, Mm -hmm. you know? So these are some of the reasons I've actually just been pursuing since 2016. I still worked in schools and stuff, um, but I've been pursuing entrepreneurship because I do want to get to that space where I can create things like outside and create independent experiences for children. Right. It's not going to be for everybody. Right. You know, it's just, it's just that's just not the way it is. But students who do want to, you know, step out and have an extraordinary experience, something that they could put on their college resume. Hey, I went to Texas and um, learn how to lasso a cow, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. is that exactly. So 
I'm trying to cultivate those type of experiences, you know, things that, that stick out in your mind, even like we're talking about people to people, you know, we'll never forget the experiences that right. we had there, whether it's the dynamics with the group, whether it's just the travel back and forth, whether it's getting the money together to figure out how you can go on something like this. So I kind of look at outside as like maybe a little microcosm of something like a people to people experience. Everybody uh-huh. can't afford between three and ten thousand dollars to go somewhere for two weeks or a month. My main thing was focusing on trying to seek out like-minded people. Mm -hmm. The number one person who I found that I thought would be most in line um, with what I'm trying to do with outside um, was Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. He has an after school foundation. You know, LeBron has education going on too, but LeBron's at the next level. LeBron, um, LeBron created housing for the students, mm-hmm. for families. This is I Promise Village. That is the number one issue. People think that they're going to drop their kids off at school and they're going to come back, you know, perfect. No, it's a holistic thing. What they eat impacts their behavior if they eat or not. You right. know, what uh, if they have somewhere to wash their uniform impacts, you know, because at this one of the schools I taught at, if you didn't have on black socks, you couldn't come to the classroom. And that's part of the problem, right. because sometimes we get in this mindset where we're like, oh, well, this is what these schools are doing. Well, this is what they're doing. So this is what well, we don't have the resources for that right now. boo boo. if you want to open up a private school, you should do that, too. But if you want to get government funding from this neighborhood, then you're going to have to acquiesce a little bit, you know, and some people were not prepared to do that. And it's detrimental to the community at the end of the day. That sort of mindset, that lack of education is the biggest thing holding us back. Or do you think there is something else that is holding us back a little bit? I think think we're being held back. I think what you're speaking to is a little bit of that keeping up with the Joneses mentality, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's kind of what we opened up with, with this whole thinking of we're doing good because we live in a neighborhood with all white people. Does that mean we're doing good? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look at the housing prices. We could get real analytical and say this black family's house costs this much. You, our family house costs this much. Who's winning? Who's happier? You know, we have a uh, thousand extra square feet. Does that make it so that we are somewhat happier? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> you know, I remember when I was growing up living in this big, beautiful house. One of the things that made me happiest was the pear trees that we had growing outside. You know, so who know, like, I, you know, have a baby cousin, buy her a toy, she played with the box, you know, so it's, it's really, you know, I think this concept of keeping up with the Joneses has to be addressed because it is like this Eurocentric feeling of, okay, if we, if we dress like this, if we look like this, if we walk in a straight line, if nobody's acting out, you know, then, then we, uh, it's about redefining success. You know, and I hope that's something that comes out of coronavirus is redetermining, redetermining what means success to us. How do you know you did well? What we're what I feel that we're experiencing is a power. It's, a, it's all about power. Mm-hmm. It's all about power structure. And the existing power structure that we have in America, you can go back to the founding fathers, this and that. People, the, 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 the structure in place doesn't want to give up the power. And we could talk about 1%. We could talk about money or we could talk about race. We, we could talk about the structure in any way you want, but the same people are at the top. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there are so many ways that we could use the government to benefit the people, but instead we keep using it as ways to to take and we bail out the banks and we bail right. out, you know, lenders and just, I even right. think when it comes to housing, 
You know, when we if we have public housing, then public housing should be proportional to the things that people need. 10% of the residents should be social workers and then just give them a discount on their rent. 20% of the residents should be nurses. We know how many people be, we're seeing these essential workers. Like there's all different types of ways to guarantee that people could have the basic things of what they need and give them the satisfaction that all humans need of knowing that they did a good job. They had an impact. They helped somebody, mm-hmm. you know, but it's too many people caught up in the greed and trying to line their pockets and trying to, you know, find ways to, you know, wear Gucci belts. And so I still think that the stimulus was $1,200 because that's the price of a Gucci belt. And that's how the government feels about people of a certain class, mm-hmm. that things like that appease you, right. that you could be given that much money and be satisfied. What are you doing now? So now I'm teaching online, okay, which I like, uh, with a platform called OutSchool. Okay. And it's basically like Uber for education. You can sign your kid up for any class. Um, the classes have different models. So I have two classes. One of my classes is note-taking. And it's a subscription model. So you can subscribe for a week. You could stay in for six weeks. You can stay in for however long I keep teaching the class. And people could just jump in, jump out. And I teach note-taking different. Each day we do a different skill. We'll learn some different content. We'll watch news clips, practice taking notes. Good fun. And my other class on there is a four-week course. So you pay for the, for the four-week course. And it's on African-American literature and culture. And I have part one and part two right now. But I'm going to keep adding as needed. And I'm just teaching about the culture. You know, I went to North Carolina a and I took several black literature classes. So I'm relaying that kind of information. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me. I didn't earn, learn that information until I was, you know, 18 plus in college. And mm-hmm. now I'm teaching that to middle and high school students. So it's, it's a very interesting experience. Um, and I'm also upcycling furniture. So I'm, I've been, I started my company in 2016, Miss Jerry Worldwide Ventures. But now I'm developing and refining and finding more avenues for it. So anybody can find me on Instagram, Miss Jerry Worldwide, and you'll see some pieces. And I'm just getting into the process of auctioning off some of my pieces because space is becoming an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really enjoying that. I love upcycling. I love recycling. I love styling. I like making the spaces around me beautiful. I had like a really, really beautiful space in New York. uh, But right now... I'm kind of trying to figure out really, really where I want to be. You know, this coronavirus has definitely taken my life and pushed it in a new direction. So on one hand, I'm grateful for the shakeup because I always land on my feet and it's exciting to have a new challenge and a new landscape. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I'm really, really reflective right now and thinking about all the opportunities and awesome things that were, you know, afforded to me along my path, whether it's, NBC, Rock Nation, uh, working with the different schools throughout Harlem and the rest of New York. It's been an amazing experience. So I'm Miss Jerry Worldwide. I am from Cary, North Carolina, and I am a proud Black woman. I'm Ebony Wiggins. My co-creators, Amanda Graham, Elise Afkin. This is The Gray Area Presents. Thank you for listening.